Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode. I've got a very interesting guest for you today, Marty Strong. He's an ex-Navy SEAL, and now he's a current CEO. He's a chief strategy officer. He's also, also an author and a speaker, and he's got a lot of interesting ideas about business leadership during crisis, uh, motivation, disruption, and I'm really excited to interview a former Navy SEAL. So, uh, Marty, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. So, yeah, you're no uh, stranger to leadership and, um, you know, thriving during crisis. So kind of talk about your background and experience and how you got to do what you're doing. As you mentioned, I, I started my uh, adult life as a Navy SEAL. I was 17 when I joined the Navy and I retired when I was 37 after 20 years in the SEAL teams. So, the you know, the second couple of decades that I was... Uh, alive it was pretty much either learning how to deal with you know changes disruptions whatever you want to call it uh, mishaps misdirections watching your assumptions fall apart right before your eyes whatever 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 category you want to put it in they trained you to anticipate that to expect that and then they also trained you to exercise your judgment and wisdom in the moment as much as you did um very proactive and very deliberate planning and rehearsals and all that. It was almost a joke among anybody who'd been a SEAL for any length of time because you know, we did it. We did it for the senior officers. And we went through the dog and pony show and all that. But we knew in the back of our heads that <clears throat> the weather is probably not going to be what they say it's going to be. They're probably going to drop us on the wrong mountaintop. You know, we knew that because that's what happens in real life. And uh, I think I think maybe about five percent of my my combat missions actually went according to plan, which was really weird. It felt weird. The rest of them, you know, Murphy and the enemy have a vote, and they kind of uh, take you where they take you when you when you get on the ground, and uh, that's when you get to exercise your judgment. You can call that crisis leadership if you want, but it's basically leadership when there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah, it's so it's so fascinating because you know pretty much from '96 all the way to 2008, my career was storybook, and then once 2008 hit, it just taught me just um, how to in my from 2008 all the way up to 2024, you know, shit hit the fan, and it's just kind of like you learn to predict everything bad that's gonna happen, and you learn to you know um, mitigate it. Uh, uh, you know, I've got stories to tell, but um, you know, this podcast is all about you, so. Um, one thing is talking about is, uh, you know, Navy SEAL training, and it's really interesting how they teach you to like, you know, focus and make good decisions under really, um, strenuous circumstances. So, um, what, mo what motivates you? Like, I'm just curious, what is your motivation and how do you execute at such a high level when everything around you, like, you know, you could be like bleeding out to death and, you know, have three limbs. How, what makes you, what motivates you? Thankfully, I haven't been in that scenario personally. So when you, when you first start SEAL training, you're, you're you're kind of an empty vessel, and everybody has a different level of psychological resilience, intelligence, creativity. Uh, I would call it you know kind of courage based on a on a strong sense of self, you know, a, a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence. And you start with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people trying to get into each class. And they get vetted out and screened for lots of different reasons. And then when they, they finally show up, there's about 100 to 120 of that original 500. So every year, if they run four or five classes, there's there's a 500-person funnel trying to get into that class. And they whittle it down to about 120 before they even start. 
for physical, psychological, intelligence, IQ tests, all kinds of things. So the group you get on day one of the six-month course is a pretty elite group all by itself. And then traditionally since 1962, 75% of them are gone by graduation. So in my class, we started with 126, ended up with 13 original uh, from that class. And uh, I was probably the most unlikely person to be in that group of 13. I was 17, 18. I looked like I was 12 with 125 pounds soaking wet. But when I went back later as an instructor, about eight years later, and I was in charge of the first phase of, of SEAL training, which is where Hell Week and everything is, kind of the crucible events, it was the first time I really understood what the course was doing and what it was selecting for. When you're going through it, you don't know. And even, even if, you know, with eight years of experience as a SEAL, I didn't really understand how that course was structured to get the best of the best at the end of the process and a very specific profile at the end of the process. And that was all those attributes I listed before, you know, the willingness to try and eventually a feeling of sure self-worth, but a different kind of thing, kind of, they call it the brotherhood now, a feeling that you're responsible for the others around you even more than you are for your own safety or your own success. And that starts to be developed when you get into a SEAL team and just starts to get stronger and stronger and stronger. So within at least a year or two, you've you've got through the, the crucible in the beginning, you're into the SEAL team experience, you're starting to get actually technically skilled at the job because it takes two or three years. And you kind of get a maturity about life and about what you're doing professionally and the and the value of the people around you. And at that point, it's not really motivation. At that point, it's it's like the whole package, the whole culture is just carrying you forward, which is a hard thing to explain to people outside of, you know, maybe a really great musical group that lasted for a long time together. You know, they get that gel, they get, they see it, you know, basketball teams, you know, like Michael Jordan being able to throw the ball in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, somebody's going to be there to get it because you played together for a thousand times. You, you just, it's all instinctive trust in everybody else. And, and you don't get unmotivated. In that in that scenario, get out of the Navy, and I I don't find that anywhere. <laughs> so, and especially as a leader, you're suddenly going, okay, so I see what's missing here. How do I get that culture? How do I get that point of view? How do I make that happen? That spark that kind of thing. And I can see why there's so many books written about leadership and motivation, and, and inspiration because <clears throat> you need to read books like that and be influenced by people in the commercial world because. That the organizations aren't structured to do it automatically. Yeah, very insightful, which, uh, you know, we come back to this idea of um, adversity and resiliency. Um, one thing I want to talk about is this um, innovation and disruption. And you wrote a book, Be Nimble, and discusses leveraging crisis and chaos as opportunities and kind of um, talk about, I'm sure you've had a ton, but just talk about, you know, this um where it's just there's uh, almost no hope, and then you found you know either emo mental or emotional leverage to get yourself out and thrive. So, you know, the Chinese character for crisis, you know, is the the two elements of opportunity and risk. I think that's a really great example of what I try to talk to in being able and in be visionary, which was about <clears throat> looking out at the horizon and trying to envision the future identify the threats that to that you can plan to avoid and also identify all the opportunities you can try to seize get beyond your toe tip so to speak it's the same theme in both books the nature of it though is you have to 
how can I put it? You have to be able to kind of set aside what you've been taught and how you've been trained, which is that risk is bad. And there's no reward. It's just risk. That failure is bad. Mm-hmm. There's nothing good about failure. It's just failure. And and emotionally, you're supposed to react to failure with depression and resentment and all this other stuff, you know, and envy of whoever didn't fail. There's all these other emotions. And that's how you're kind of raised by society. So it's really hard for people to shake off and and get away from that mindset. But I talk about in, in all my books that you have to kind of clear your mind and clear the, you know, the slate for, of all your baggage, both good and bad. And, and I do it every morning for about 10 minutes. It's not a meditation or anything. I just sit down and say, okay, yesterday something bad happened and I made some mistakes. Yesterday I got an award, you know, and I'm a superhero. So what? Everything forward has nothing to do with what happened yesterday unless you let it influence you. That's one thing. The second thing, and that's I call it uh, intellectual humility. The next thing is intellectual curiosity. You have to clear your mind of all that baggage to be able to take in new information from all sources, 360 degrees. And it, if you've done the first thing and you're humble, you are actually honestly going out and seeking things that you do not know. And you're talking to people that you've never met about things you've never heard before. And you're pulling that all in. So when you start to do the solution and create a solution set, you can truly get into the third phase, which will creativity. If you don't do the first two, you're not really doing intellectual creativity. You're just kind of doing false creativity. You're saying the old football plays that used to work are going to work again. So in dealing with risk, you take each day and you see it as an opportunity, not as a threat that you're going to have to fend off for, you know, the next 12, 13 hours. And a lot of people that think that way, it's because of that baggage that they carry into their next day. They wake up feeling like, you know, I was in trouble yesterday or I was chased yesterday or I failed yesterday. And it may be yesterday, metaphorically, it could have been a week ago, a month ago. For some people, they'll carry that baggage for, you know, a year or more. And it's just coloring your, your view of the world. And you see everything is risk and everything is potential failure. And of course, everybody's heard before, you know, failure is just an opportunity to learn and get better. Wisdom defined is the sum total of your mistakes. You don't make any mistakes. You don't, you don't take risks. You don't put it out there a little bit. You're never going to become wise. I love that. Um, I really love this, how you describe that. It's really, it's very powerful. Um, next, the next question is, because um, we talked about risk and opportunity. And uh, if you basically, if you don't, you you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I'm curious about your leadership philosophy and you've got military business careers. You talk about adaptive leadership and how has your experience as a Navy SEAL influenced your approach to strategic leadership crisis management and kind of give an example from your um, sure. training and career? So, you know, I didn't know this phrase when I was going through the, the selection course, but it's, it's, I can't attribute it to it, but it's been around for a long time. The first casualty upon contact with the enemy is the plan. It's kind of akin to Mike Tyson's, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Now that's, that's kind of a negative thing, but I mentioned earlier, from decades all the way back to World War II, have documented lessons learned in combat. SEALs and the predecessor frogmen of World War II in Korea they made mistakes, they wrote them down, they tried to bake them into the training so that the next, next generation wouldn't make the same mistakes. But one of those mistakes is to believe too much in the plan, to believe too much in the assumptions that the plan's based on, because you can't control what you can't see. So what they do is they 
Look for people that are adaptive, intelligent, high IQs, and curious and creative because you have to be creative if you've only got about 12 minutes to figure out how you're going to take down a target after you spent a month rehearsing the plan is not going to work now. <laughs> and everybody else has to be comfortable with, okay, it's pick up basketball. What do you want to do, boss? You know, it's because that's the way it is. So they prepare you on two tracks, technically learning how to do it by the numbers. And on the second, on the second track, what do you do if everything's falling apart, total chaos, crisis, you know, nothing's working right. And uh, you still have to execute. You still have to do it. And the way the leadership kind of unfolds in that, the you learn kind of project management-based, linear planning, multi-phase, lots of experimental storyboarding of options. You're load, load, uh, loading all your phases and, and, and supporting steps of performance with time and resources. And you, know, you do all that stuff, right? Very, very MBA way of you know planning a mission. And at the same time, because you've been prepared and trained prior to that point to deal with anything that goes wrong, you know that that's probably the likely place you're going to end up when this is all over. And I, I don't want to just, you know, speak badly of senior officers, but it's always been a case, I think, all the way back, at least into Vietnam, where whatever the senior officers wanted to hear as far as the plan, the disconnect in time and space geogra uh, geographically was enough to mess up the assumptions to where you probably weren't really going to do the plan you told everybody you were going to do. At least I never did. You know, I was ready for a boat, helicopter shows up. Oh, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, half my gear can't go in because the boat could carry all of it. So what are we going to strip down? We've got two minutes to get on the helicopter. All these kinds of weird things. It prepares you as a leader and not even the followers. Everybody in the SEAL teams are all probably fantastic leaders. The fact that there's a rank structure is just an old school Navy thing. Any one of them could probably lead a mission easily, and a lot of them did in Vietnam. So the tradition is that when you get into the fix and get into the mix and you see that everything's changed or a lot of things have changed, you all help each other and you all kind of feed into whoever's asking, what do you think? What do you think? Okay, go. And then you break up and you go do the mission and you come back out. Hmm. Again, back to the confidence and motivation. You do that and you pull it off time and time again. You feel like you've got both things going for you. You've got a really great plan, really well thought out and rehearsed. And if for some reason that, that, that's not going to happen, your plan B is still a really good plan B. In a lot of cases, it's simpler and more adaptive and you're nimble and agile in the moment. And in my in my uh, experiences, that plan usually flows a little bit easier and smoother because it's simpler than the, the dog and pony plan that I described before. So what that does for you as a leader is that it starts to change your mind into kind of two different areas. Management, think of the MBA planning of the mission, management practices. If everything goes perfectly, that plan will go perfectly. Whatever we put up on the, the dry erase board, whatever we, whatever we gave to everybody in a PowerPoint, that's what's going to happen. But the other part is, tr is truly leadership. It's when everything falls apart. Like when COVID hits, it takes out your supply chain, things like that. If you are a manager and have a manager mindset and you're not prepared for this leadership mindset, you're lost. All you know how to do is the X's and the O's and the lines and the dog and pony briefings. You don't know how to pull a team together and your team doesn't know how to come together in a room and reinvent and reimagine how you're going to survive and even thrive in this whole new normal. So uh, a lot of companies got caught flat footed because of that. Mm -hmm. and, a lot, and a lot of companies did exactly what I just mentioned. They, they spent like you know, a day or two being miserable. And then the leader said, okay, 
We're not going to be what we were. Let's get everybody in the room and figure out what we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Re- restructure the company, restructure, you know, rebuild our, our um, whatever it is they lost with supply chain or communications, whatever. And um, let's launch a new plan. Let's launch a new strategy. Let's execute. And we'll work on the little, the little things on the way. It's not going to be a perfect plan. It's going to be like 85% rule. You're going to get about 85% ready to go, go. And that's like rapid prototyping. As you're going, you get feedback from reality in the universe. Tweak, fix, adjust, get in a room, talk about it, go back out and do it again. It sounds random and it sounds chaotic in itself, but it's not. It's an actual, an actual methodology of leading through crisis and chaos and through the disruption to your plan, your system, your processes, and even the people that are very rigid and you know, they're, they're a reflection of their resume. And that's it. But they're not ready to go into a room and play pickup basketball because they're football players or they're dancers. They, they, they can't even see themselves in that role. Really powerful. And I love how you talked about, you know, when everything is falling apart and how do you keep your wits about you? Um, this goes to my kind of final question, because I really love, again, so much. This is why I love talking to um, just um, outstanding people such as yourself. And so, you know, you've had personal battles, you experienced tragic loss and uh, every, like I said, there's like when there's no way out and what lessons did you learn? And from that experience about overcoming obstacles where it seems like everything was against you, it's easier just to pack up and just quit. And what kept, keeps you going? I think that philosophy of those three steps, you know, starting with the intellectual humility, a lot of that is, uh, it's a high level of emotional maturity if you can take all that baggage, all that bad stuff out of your head. And if you practice that every day, like every other thing, it becomes a habit. It becomes a part of your personal discipline. And if you do that, it's it's a great way to inoculate yourself from even the greatest of, of you know, catastrophes. You know, you're alluding to it. So I lost my oldest son right after I came back from Iraq. I um, had cancer twice, you know. When you when you are faced with these things, you know the cancer. There's still possibilities, right? But when your son dies, or any family member dies, or one of your men dies, or something, it's final. So then you have to sit there and say, "Did I have anything to do with it? Could I could I have changed the outcome?" And and you have all kinds of survivor's guilt. And if you're a parent, even if you weren't around, you have survivor's guilt, and you have this parent guilt, like I should have done something. I could even if he was 22 years old. You're you're messing your mind up. You have to kind of get back to that that discipline of, I can't change yesterday. All I can do is affect tomorrow. So I have to wake up with a positive attitude. And the way you do that is you clear your mind of all the negative attitude. And you sit there and you go, okay, it's a new day. And I'm going to step out in a positive way. And I'm going to figure out how to learn something new. And if something comes at me, I'm going to figure out how to fix it. It's the only way you can do it. It's the only way you can continue to survive. Yeah. I love it. And then, like I said, I've talked to a lot of people that experience tragic loss or just so much trauma. They're able to detach from it. They still, they're still affected by the loss, but they able to detach and they're able to function and stay focused and kind of separated. And um, especially, and I've seen it, especially now with in very high functioning you know, surgeons, Navy SEALs, leaders, CEOs, executives, and they have this ability, um, which is really interesting, you know, psychologically. Um, How can people find out more about the work that you do? Uh, They can go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com. So all my books are there, uh, links to my articles, my speaking programs, et cetera. 
uh, and I'm also on Amazon. Uh, my novels are under ML Strong, and my uh, business books are under Marty Strong. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And um, uh, for all the audience, I really enjoyed having Marty on the show. And be sure to check out his socials, give him a like and follow. His book will be in the links in the show notes. And with that, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris.